Father, I do thank you for the young people who guide in the, uh, the praise this morning. And uh, it's exciting, as those of us who are getting older uh, can look at the youth and see that they're the future of the church, the future of the assembly, and uh, the future of all chapels. And, and we thank you, Father, for those young people and what they invest. We pray for Eme this morning. I miss his gentleness. There's a hole at Northbrook when Eme's not here. And uh, we pray, Father, that you'll raise him up, strengthen him, encourage him, and uh, guide and direct in his life. We thank you now for your love and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, you can be assured that we're delighted to have Miriam with us. It was over two and a half years since I saw her when she was working in Benin, West Africa, with uh, AIDS, HIV uh, patients. But I'd, I'd like to give her a, a, just a few minutes here now to, uh, to address you folks. To carry on with a bit of a theme that came in uh, very strongly to our uh, our breaking of bread uh, service this morning, and that is that prayer is the key to victory. Now, of course, we're in the middle of a very big uh, celebration right now, the 150th. I believe our government is spending half a billion dollars on this. I don't know how. Don't ask me how many zeros that is, but it's a whole lot. And uh, apparently that's quite a, quite a celebration. I ask you, who has made us great during the last 150 years? Now, you might think of the Irvings. Jim Irving and his family members uh, give employment to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. I don't know what the number would be. Uh, hundreds of people, particularly here in the Maritimes. We think of athletes, if you're from Cole Harbor. You think of Sidney Crosby, who's helped to make us famous all over the world. We think of Canadian researchers like Dr. Banting and Mr. Best, who invented insulin for the management of diabetes. And I'm sure there are more than likely people here who are very dependent upon that research and uh, the insulin involved in that. But do we ever think what Canada would look like if not one spirit-filled believer had prayed for this country and its leaders during the last 150 years? We were challenged this morning in breaking of bread to be praying for our country and to be praying for the leaders who are uh, in, in command here. And yet we have a command in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. That's quite a statement. That is quite an amazing statement. Pray without ceasing. But certainly it emphasizes that prayer is very important. I'm thinking of this morning of giant prayer warriors. Men like Chuck Johnson, a lady named Marg Jank, who just very recently went to be with the Lord. And uh, I'm thinking of uh, Les Peterson and Jean Dye Johnson. Now, you don't realize or you don't know who those people are because prayer warriors don't get a lot of notoriety. They're not under the lights. They're not in front of a microphone. Most of what they do is private, strictly between them and the Lord. But let me assure you, those four people who you don't know were giants as far as, as uh, the Lord is concerned. Let's turn, if you would, please, to Hebrews 4.16. Quite an amazing verse. Hebrews 4.16. 
I don't even pretend to fully understand this verse, but in verse 16 of the fourth chapter of Hebrews, let us therefore come boldly. You think of the lives that some of us led, selfish lives, self-centered lives, lives that were focused on on monetary gain and, and things of this world. And yet now we can read this with absolute victory if we have been born again and have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. My grace is made perfect in weakness. How precious, how precious those words are that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God realized that the walk on the Calvary Road is not an easy walk. Not only are there huge potholes in the Calvary Road, but they have no intention of repairing them. Because everyone, why should we be any different than the apostles? Why should we be any different than other Christians? And I'll tell you, while I've been having this, uh, this shingle situation over the last eight months, I've looked around and watched more carefully to what my brothers and sisters are going through. I was not alone. They're going through terrific trials and tests and valleys themselves. And it's good for us to notice that those who compare themselves amongst themselves are not wise as far as competition is concerned, but as far as being aware of the fact that our brothers and sisters are going through huge challenges as well is very beneficial and very positive, and it is certainly the truth. Would some unstable state leader have pushed the button by now? Does it ever amaze you that these people who are wild with hatred and wild with anger and rage have not pushed the button? And yet some of them, I'm thinking of North Korea, certainly seem to be moving in that direction. Faithful believers, if they had not boldly gone to the throne room, and ask for God's shield of protection, what would Canada look like? I was looking out the window at the ocean yesterday from my home and looking at the cottages and, and beautiful fields in front of me and wondering what would Canada look like if spirit-filled Christians had not interceded on our behalf over the last 150 years? How many prayers does that represent? Trillions, trillions of prayers by faithful believers going boldly to the throne room of Christ. Who has really played the biggest role in us arriving at our 150th anniversary? Certainly something that we can be thinking about. In the life of Paul, we see some prayers that definitely impacted the lives of the Colossians. The book of Colossians is an amazing book, and uh, it really shows some of the passion, some of the passion that goes out. Uh, One of the things our 19 years over in Africa. One of the things that really impacted us, and you, you notice that quite often when people are in African dress, it's very bright. David was telling me about a shirt he has, <laughs> which uh, I definitely have not seen because the way he described it, it would have left an impact that I, even I at my age would have remembered. As we look at this passage, I would like to ask you to ask yourself a question. If five people... And I'm going to give you a challenge this morning. If five people took aspects of the passage that we're now going to study and prayed for your leaders 
here at Northbrook, your two elders, if you prayed for them faithfully for 90 days, would it make a difference on the, in this work? Would it make a difference in the leadership? Would it make a difference in their lives? I want you to hold on to that thought. And uh, I want you to think of the Colossians, but I also want you to think of your own elders as we look at some of these verses. If you'd turn, please, to Colossians number 1 and verse 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. This is Paul speaking. Imagine if he was speaking to you and he said this, praying always for you. I'll tell you, that would, uh, would be very, very precious to say the least. To say that he is praying for you always, that would be quite a moment and quite a day. Imagine Paul looking into your eyes and saying that. Paul goes on in verse 9 to repeat his promise to the Colossians. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Wow, what a statement. Do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled. You might be, not that you just have an awareness, not that you just understand, but to be filled with the knowledge of his will not in wisdom, but in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. You know, when Paul speaks like that, he reminds me of the culture that we lived in in Africa for 19 years. And it, it's exuberant. It, uh, the, not only just the colors, but uh, so much of the culture, the way they worship, the way they sing. And uh, it's, it's exciting, and it becomes part of you. Uh, you will not go to Africa for 19 years and not be changed. And Miriam certainly has been impacted. She's been there more than I have and longer than I have, and uh, an extra 10 years. And uh, it, it changes you. It's, it's, a different, it's a different pace. It's a different theme. It's, it's a different mood. And, and the culture is very, very different. And you miss it when you're taken away from it. And certainly there are people here this morning who are missing, missing that culture and some of the aspects of that culture. Obviously, Paul had a burning passion to know God's will for his life every new day. Imagine starting off your day and saying, Lord, what is your will for me today? Where is it you want me to do? What do you want me to be available for? What is it? And that, that was the way that Paul lived. That was so much who he was. He equally wanted that same knowledge and discernment in the lives of those he loved and cared for at that time. Paul was always very aware of how wealthy he was spiritually. But the thing about Paul is he never wanted to keep it to himself. He longed to have an impact on the lives of other people, teachable hearts, understanding hearts, hearts that could understand that his priorities were godly priorities to the point where he even said at one point, walk as I walk, do as I do. What an incredible statements. And yet he was able to make them because he believed that with all his heart. He does not say he would like them to have some idea of what God wanted in their lives. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge. That's quite a statement. Sort of like every cell from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. I want you to fully, fully understand 
the will of God for your life. He wants them filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom, not just wisdom once again, but all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The words, and, and this is a, a statement that I think really sizes up Paul. But there was an immensity and all-inclusive nature to Paul's prayers. He doesn't just casually pray. He truly, truly prays with incredible fervency. And in verse 10, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And once again, I'm, I'm thinking about your elders. And if anyone would be challenged to pray for them for the next 90 days, and here are three things that you could pray for. First of all, that their walk with Christ would be pleasing to God each day. That is something that, once again, is very precious, and that was obviously a passionate thing for Paul. That their good works would bear fruit in eternal terms, and the only way that can happen is if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're truly, completely in fellowship with Jesus Christ, if you've dealt with the issues in your heart and you're truly open to what Christ would have and that they would grow in their understanding and knowledge of God. A very special, very precious, and very godly goal for our lives. Paul is putting a blanket of needs over them and then attacking those areas of need with his prayers. He set them up, and now he's knocking them down, if you will, with his prayers. In verse 11, he wants to see them instilled with the glorious power of God. And he believes that power will result in patience that is manifested in joy. So when your wife has not come out the door and you've been sitting in the car for five minutes, <laughs> uh, can you do it with joy? That's different. And that's, that takes me back to what the, the word exhorts us in. Don't bother giving if you're giving out of duty when you're under some kind of bondage and legalism, forget it. Leave your money in your wallet. Don't bother. Ah, but if you can give with joy and delight and honor and, and grace to the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, that's different. Open up your wallet. Go ahead and give because that's the way to give. And this is the way to practice patience is with joy. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much distress it puts you in, God is a God of decency and order. He has a purpose in what he's allowing in your life. And that would be a great comfort when you're in a deep valley, when you're in a time of hurt, when you're in a time of distress, to realize that God has a purpose. He's not a goof-off God. He's a God of order and decency. And he has a purpose and a plan in everything that he allows in your life. That is always the case. In verse 12, and this opens up a whole series of verses. He longs for them to be thankful Christians. Once again, thinking of your elders, if you're looking for things that you could pray for them right out of the word of God and who walk in the light and not in the elements of darkness of this world. Paul goes back to this theme of thankfulness over and over again. And you know, when your teacher repeats what he's saying, and uh, we, we don't have uh, our professor from Dallas this morning here. But whether it be an instructor or a teacher or a professor, don't just learn the materials and then go over here to the examination. 
analyze your instructor and listen carefully to what he repeats over and over again because that's what's really precious to his heart. That's why he repeats them. And that, that information will sneak onto the exam almost every time. So your task there is not just to learn the material and try to reproduce it on the exam. Analyze your professor because he's the guy who's going to write the exam and find out what is really precious to him because I guarantee you those elements will work their way into the exam. I've, I've heard of students, and I've done it myself, trying to write the exam, produce the exam, before you go into the examination room to uh, present whatever you know. But if you do that exam, no, it won't be perfectly like the professor's, but it will, will bear some resemblance if you have really been listening carefully and hearing what he repeats. And here, obviously, Paul considers thankfulness very precious. Why would he do that? Because that's what he's going to be doing in heaven. Praise and thanksgiving are going to be a big part. We don't know a lot about heaven, but you certainly get the impression that praise and thanksgiving are going to be part of our worship in heaven. In, in Colossians 2.7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, and listen to this, here's Africa, here's Paul. And, and it's just the way he puts this, abounding therein with thanksgiving. He adds a little pizzazz, he adds a little color, he adds a little fervency in what he says, abounding therein with thanksgiving. How are you doing this morning? Are you abounding? <laughs> I hope you are. And if you've cast all your cares upon him, because he loves you perfectly. Careth isn't strong enough. He loves you perfectly with agape love. He's excited about you. Are you excited about him this morning? Oh, well, I have burdens. <laughs> I have them too, folks. But let's come out of here with a smile. Let's be casting our burdens upon him. He can handle them all. His shoulders are big, and he can handle it. And as he handles it, and as your, your burden gets lighter and lighter, and you truly cast it upon him, then you will have, how did he put it? Abounding, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And when I equate that with African culture, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's because you haven't been to Africa. In Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And here comes a command, Be ye thankful. He doesn't just casually say it. He puts it into a command. And in Colossians 3.17, and whatsoever ye do in word or deed, that's pretty well everything, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Do you see any prayer items that would be profitable for your elders for the next three months? The challenge has been placed before you, but you're under grace. So you have perfect freedom to not accept that challenge or to run with it for the next 90 days. And once again, we're not talking about legalism here. Oh, you got to do it every day. No, as the Lord leads, as the Lord leads, what would you pick out of Paul's exhortations here? As the Lord leads. That's what being under grace is. It's not a burden. It's a privilege, it's a joy, it's a delight. 
So you're, you're free to accept or not to accept and run with this for the next 90 days. That is taking your prayers right out of the heart of Paul and the inspired word of God and putting them into action. Now this challenge is for those who've been truly washed by the blood of Christ. That isn't supposed to be politically correct in 2017. What a, what a sad thing. And I've thought about this. One of the most, not one of the most, the most precious thing that's ever been introduced, that's ever come to this planet Earth, was the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What else is more precious than that? Nothing. Nothing even comes remotely close. And yet today people are running around saying, oh, when you mention the blood, that isn't politically correct. Well, isn't that too bad? Because don't you ever forget that is the most precious thing that was ever introduced to this sin-cursed little ball of, of the universe that floats around out here. That was the most precious thing ever introduced. Don't ever apologize for the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that blood. That's what opened the door for you and I to be anticipating the mansion that Jesus Christ has prepared for you and I in heaven. And so many of our dear precious ones here at Northbrook are already there. They're already in his presence. They know what being, uh, having a glorified mind and a glorified body. They know what that's all about because it's been personally their experience. What an anticipation. What a hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who've been sealed by the Spirit. You know, so many people in the world, they, when they say, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to be with Jesus Christ. I'm going to be glorified. Oh, well, that's conceit. That's egotism. You think you're something special. No, I'm nothing special at all, but my Jesus Christ is special. He's the most precious thing, the most precious person to ever walk on this planet, and he's mine. He lives in my heart, and I live within him. Praise God. Praise God for that. Romans 6, 23 but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift, the gift, what is it not? It's so important to understand what that is not. It's not a salary. It's not a bank account of personal merit. I thought it was for 30 years. I thought being a guidance counselor and helping young people at high school that I was racking up merit. And the more I gave of myself to those young people, the more I was impressing God. And I was impressing God to the point where he would open the gates of heaven. And one day I would get the, to spend that time with him. It's not personal religiosity, that horrible, horrible deception, where if my good works outweigh my bad works, then I'll get into heaven. Then the doors will open for me. No, wrong. It's not in the word of God. It's a gift. Let's go back to that verse again. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What makes something a gift? It has to be absolutely free. If you give me something and negotiate with me how much I must pay you, then that's not a gift. If it has hooks, well, if you accept this gift, but I expect you to do this, 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 that's not a gift. That's certainly, certainly not a gift. A gift is absolutely free. But ah, this is the hard part. Why did it have to be a gift? 
Why did it have to be 100% Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, on Mount Calvary, and God overseeing before he turned away, but accepting this sacrifice as sufficient to pay for the sins of a whole world? Why did it have to be that way? Simple reason. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were not worthy to be part of that issue on the cross. You were not worthy to be in heaven looking down over that whole thing. Only perfection and holiness and righteousness and purity were worthy to be in that equation. So you had to stand back for that one simple reason. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus Christ, in his perfect love for you and I, he was willing to die on that cross. One of the most sadistic forms of capital punishment that man's sick little mind ever came up with. And yet he came in and and he knew what the form of capital punishment was. It wasn't uh, pills and, and, and a little dreamy state and then a little slip in of a needle into your arm. No, no, no. He came when you died on a cross. Why did he do that? Because he loves you and he loves me. And he was willing to sacrifice in that way so that we could be free and that he allowed himself to be pinned to that cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, and that's what it's all about. It has nothing to do with works. Remember the thief on the cross. He couldn't put any money in the plate. He couldn't do any good works. He couldn't do anything. He was nailed to a cross, but he could believe. In his belief, he recognized Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And Jesus looked back at him and said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It has nothing to do with our religiosity. It has nothing to do with our good works outweighing our bad works. What a horrible system. Wondering all your life, even as you take your last breath in that hospital room and you slip off into eternity, wondering, I wonder if I made it. I hope I wasn't one short. I hope I'm not headed for the flames of hell and the thirst and the torment and the agony. I hope I'm not headed for that. And what kind of loving God would leave you in a mess like that? No, he didn't. His son paid the price. He paid the price for every sin that you could ever commit. And he will give you the absolute assurance that's called in the scriptures an earnest. An earnest is a real estate term. It's a down payment on a house so big and so significant that you know you're going to live in that house one day. And you know that Jesus Christ and his love will seal you with the Holy Spirit. And when you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ, you will know that you have the gift, keyword, the gift of everlasting and eternal life. You will know. You'll be certain because you'll be sealed. If you're here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he's calling out to you. His arms are open. The only thing that is an unforgivable sin 
is turning your back on the sacrifice at Calvary that Jesus Christ offered us and saying, no, I'm going to count on myself. I refuse to put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only unforgivable sin that will stay with you throughout all of eternity. Say yes, because Jesus Christ is saying yes to you. Jesus Christ loves you, and he longs for you to have the gift, the gift of everlasting life and everlasting forgiveness. Don't say no to that, because God wants to see you saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, for, for your love and your care for us. You know the hearts of every person here today. You know whether they've received your grace, your love, your forgiveness. I pray, Father, that nobody, nobody will go out of this place today counting on themselves, trying to pull their own bootstraps, because when you pull on your own bootstraps, you end up flat on your back. I pray, Father, that they're quietly, lovingly trusting you, because what you did for us at Calvary was perfect and complete and eternal. And I pray, Father, that no one will turn their back on that. In Jesus' name, amen.